When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So you are still speaking to me then? Uh, what is that? Well, I, I'm going to let the listeners into a, a little something that happened. Yeah. Ed, last weekend, decided to cook a black bean soup. I, d- I did, and it was on Saturday morning last weekend. And you sent me a photograph of it. You're quite proud. Yeah. And, yeah. and I don't think I was very nice about the photograph. I think you were at the top end of reactions to the black bean soup, in truth. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I said it looked like a ditch after a storm. Can I tell you the story? I mean, this bloody black bean soup. So I bought the black beans more than a year ago. Were they in your Brexit cupboard? Yeah. And so, so I've had. So I've. So I think I've had black bean soup in a, in a Mexican restaurant before, and I can't like Mexican food. So then, totally uncharacteristically, last weekend, partly to sort of keep the demons at bay, I decided to start cooking at like Saturday morning at ten a.m. and I decided to cook this black bean soup, and I'd ordered the soured cream that you can have in the black bean soup and all that. I mean, it's a bit of a bugger to make, and I only realised afterwards that if you've got... It's so weird, this. If there's hard water in the place you live, you shouldn't put the red wine in early because it makes it much harder to break down the beans. So I then had to sort of blend the beans to sort of release the starch, break them down. Anyway, I sort of eventually got to the end of the black bean soup, made it. I mean, Justine had always been expressing sort of relative sort of distaste for the idea of this black (laughs) bean soup, but I persisted. I, I sent the video, the, the the picture to you. You were pretty contemptuous. Um, I got her to eat some for lunch, and she wasn't really having any of it. So the black bean soup then sat in the fridge for three days, and I've now frozen it because I thought I can't throw it out. <laughs> so I put it in Tupperware and frozen it. <laughs> now, I don't know what my next step is on the black bean soup. I mean, 
I actually thought the black bean soup was perfectly nice, but I suppose I then realised that black bean soup, you can only have it in small doses, really. See, I wondered if the problem might be that, that the, the photograph you took, you hadn't styled the food properly, because there is an art to food photography. I mean, will you at some point, when lockdown is over, have some of this black bean soup? I mean, I actually think it's perfectly edible, the black bean soup. But you've, 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 got, you've got to learn to take better pictures of your food. Do you know there are people who's whose job it is on photo shoots to make to make food i'm not sure the problem was the picture let me give you some items used in food photo shoots and and you can try and guess what they're used for um motor oil i don't know that is if you're ever taking a picture of a stack of pancakes with syrup on them you don't use real syrup because it soaks into the pancakes too quickly so if you pour castrol gtx or whatever is that true yeah yeah um glue no idea Glue, if you want to take a photograph of a bowl of cereal, um, but you don't want the milk to make the cereal go soggy, you, you use, you know, like glue in there. Instead, I'm guessing like craft glue, like kids use, wow. and it looks like milk on camera. Not Pritt stick, yeah. Shaving cream? No idea. It's an easy one, whipped cream. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and then what, I'll, I'll give you a guess at this one. Yeah. Uh, in food photo shoots, what are tampons used for? You soak them in water and then you microwave them and hide them in the photo so, to give the impression of steam coming off the food. Are you serious? Yes. Is that you, that's, that, how did you find this out? Did a bit of Googling, I did a bit of helpful Googling beforehand. So the next time wow. you're take, sending me a picture of your black bean soup, you just need to soak some tampons in water and hide them somewhere. In the photo. I'm not sure the steam would have helped very much, though. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, for my next trick, I'm making a tofu recipe this weekend. <laughs> I'm not giving up. But, I mean, I think the problem is, I think there's a sort of, I think there's a sort of category error that I made, which is I'm not sure that people like black bean soup that much. I, I like a black bean soup. Do you? Yeah. Good way of getting a bit of protein as a vegetarian. Yeah, that's the other thing is that, I, I mean, it was alleged that it had funny, funny sort of um, stomach effects. <laughs> the black bean soup. Anyway. Um, well, I, I look forward to hearing about the tofu next week. Then, Yeah. Uh, Should we talk about what we're talking about on this week's episode then? This week we're talking about childcare and the impact of the last few months on working parents. Lockdown has reminded us how much we rely on childcare, as many of us have had to juggle looking after kids at home alongside doing our usual jobs. Now, research has shown this has had a disproportionate impact on working mothers. One study found 70% of mothers said they were the default parent during lockdown. Another found mothers have done an average of two hours more childcare a day than fathers. With the earlier childcare sector now in crisis as a result of coronavirus and a quarter of providers at risk of collapse, we're asking how to make sure childcare is truly valued in the coronavirus recovery. We're talking to researcher Christine Berry and Lucy Stevens from the New Economics Foundation about why the crisis should prompt a re-evaluation of our approach to both paid and unpaid childcare. And we're talking to Marianne Stevenson from the Women's Budget Group about the broader economic impact of the crisis on working women and the need for government to consider gender equality in the recovery. And I'm very excited about this week's cheerful person. He was actually my reason to be cheerful a few weeks ago. He has been a boon to parents of young children during lockdown. He is the host of the podcast, his podcast, uh, on CBeebies. It's Nick Cope. Looking forward to that conversation. And, there's, and spoiler alert, there's some, there's some singing. That's right. Not by, not by us, though. That would be a, a, indeed a spoiler. Um, so what's your reason to be cheerful? 
My reason to be cheerful this week is that our local playground has reopened. Hurrah! So my son has somewhere to go. Not yet the leisure centre. Well, listen listen but... to this. It was due to reopen last Saturday. So all, I wasn't yeah. there, but all these parents yeah. converged on yeah. the park. It wasn't yeah. open because the council hadn't done all the... The playground, not the leisure centre. The playground. The council hadn't done all the necessary safety checks. So the parents, it was like the storming of the Bastille. They broke the gate down. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It's Cliss Old Park in Stoke Newington in North London. And maybe they didn't break the gate down, but they certainly, um, they bent the bars and all these people were sort of rampaging and uh, storming the playground. Has it been a local news story? Yes, it has. Yes, it has. Wow. Yeah. Well, you weren't one of the guilty. No, no. And I, I'm, such a, I'm, I'm a rule follower to the extent that the next day we were in there and there were all these kids and parents climbing through the railings, through the gap in the railings, because it was padlocked up and my son wanted to go in. And I said, no, absolutely not. Those people are rule breakers. We are rule followers in this family. It's so interesting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I'm glad to know you're a rule follower. Yeah. But I mean, the fact that it's officially reopening is, is good. Yes. What's, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is a film, um, and honestly, this film is, like, bloody good. Um, uh, it's called um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, and it's with Tom Hanks. Oh. Um, what kind of O was that? No, I know about Mr Rogers, because I'm married to an American. About I've Ms. never heard of him. About Honestly, you, you are going to be – I mean, honestly, if I was weeping, I mean, you are just going to be weeping absolute buckets. I mean, you're going to need, like, you know, a couple of buckets. I, th- I think it came of, about, though, I think there was a really good documentary about him that was released in cinemas a few years ago. And off the back of oh, that, there was, they decided there to was. make this, um, this, this biopic. But the thing was, I don't know whether I talked to you about this at the time, but there was this amazing New York Times article about a woman who went to interview Tom Hanks about the film last November – And I remember reading it at the time and feeling incredibly moved by the article because she breaks down or or, or bursts into tears during the interview with Tom Hanks. And basically, Tom Hanks comes across as literally the nicest man in the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, the whole article is about what a nice man Tom Hanks is, and he's incredibly nice to her. And then I read that article and I'd forgotten about the film until we came across it. And and then. The film, I mean, the film is honestly made by... Tom Hanks was for some reason nominated for Best Supporting Actor, didn't win the Oscars. But honestly, the film is made by Tom Hanks. And just, you might think this is a film about a children's TV character. You know, it could be about Rent-A-Ghost or something. Um, But it's really about sort of kindness and talking to your children about their feelings. And, I mean, it is really... I mean, honestly, it's a really, really good... And there's this incredibly sort of resonant thing that I read in this New York Times interview, which is... It's basically about a journalist who who is sort of kind of... Well, in the film, an investigative journalist who writes nasty things about people. And it's based on a true story. And he basically has his sort of life and his kind of mind changed by Mr. Rogers. But there's something in the per- the person... The journalist who... I think wrote the book or the piece about Mr. Rogers said, said something like in the end I concluded it wasn't about who the real Mr. Rogers was. It was what he did. It's what you do, not who you are that matters. In other words, what you do tells you who you are. And Mm. basically the point was Mr. Rogers was such a kind person that that told you what who he was and so therefore searching for who the real mr rogers was wasn't really the point you just needed to look at 
what he was really like and what, what sorry what he really did for people and i thought it was a really interesting life lesson yeah can't wait to watch that and have a good cry honestly this film is bloody amazing you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd we're going to start by talking to Christine Berry, uh, who's uh, making a second appearance on the podcast, who's a freelance researcher and writer, and Lucy Stevens, who is head of co-production at the New Economics Foundation. Um, hello, both. Thank you so much for, for coming on and talking to us. And um, Christine, if we could start with you. You've been talking to parents about childcare during lockdown, and... I was wondering if you could tell us from the conversations that you've been having, what has the experience of the last few months been like? I think if I had to sum it up in a word, exhausting. Um, I think the commonality to you know almost all parents, um, certainly working parents through the crisis, has been having to juggle work with childcare. So there's been this weird disjunct where anyone without children, you know, was wondering how they were going to fill this vast expanse of time ahead of them and talking about the new hobbies they were going to take up, being worried about loneliness. For parents, it's been the complete opposite experience, right? Because with schools and with nurseries closed, they're basically being expected to do two jobs at once. Um, So to homeschool or look after their toddlers or babies um, and to carry on with their day jobs. Um, And I think I really can't overstate just the level of financial and mental and emotional strain that that's put on families the impact of that on almost everybody that I know and everyone I've spoken to um, has been just absolutely immense Um, but I think it's also really important to recognize that as with everything in this crisis the impacts of that have not been spread evenly right and you know there are obvious gender disparities and who's picking up that childcare, but also massive differences in terms of class and what type of employment you're in Um, so even in the best case scenario a lot of you know, middle class, um, securely employed parents that I know whose employers have been quite understanding and basically said, um, you know, just do your best. We understand you won't be able to keep working all of your hours. Even they've ended up deciding they need to cut their hours because they just can't cope and they've taken a pay cut as a result of that. But then at the other end of the scale, you know, I've heard some like truly horrendous stories of parents, even with kids with special educational needs or kids that have got health conditions that have been told they should be shielding where their employers have refused them furlough and basically told them they need to come into work or they're going to be fired. People who've lost their jobs, um, you know, people who for that reason have had to rely on grandparents for care when they weren't supposed to during lockdown and have had police knocking on their door threatening to find them because their grandparents have been around. Um, so I think the position that some people have been put in by that is just, you know, t- truly kind of impossible and intolerable. And and what do you think about how lockdown and, and this past period has, has what, what do you think it's shown up about our reliance on childcare, about holes in the system, about how it's valued or or perhaps not valued? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been this sort of weirdly contradictory thing, I think, the experience of childcare in lockdown, that on the one hand, you know, uh, we've seen this tacit acknowledgement that childcare is essential, right? So that was a big feature of the debate about schools reopening, was that everyone sort of knew that the reason government was pushing so hard for schools to reopen was because they wanted to get parents back to work and parents couldn't go back to work whilst looking after their children. But on the other hand, I think, government hasn't wanted to make that explicit or to kind of explicitly value and acknowledge that unpaid childcare work. I think partly because the scale of it is just so immense that they don't want to open that Pandora's box because they don't want to assume those liabilities. 
Lucy, can we bring you in here and, and you know, just to, uh, to speak a bit more to what Christine was just saying, talk to us a little bit, I guess, about perhaps um, how the state and policy uh, have approached childcare in the past and, and what the last few months have done to maybe cause us to reevaluate that. Um, I mean, I would I would echo a lot of what Christine's saying in, in the parents that I'm speaking to, childcare is, is almost the only conversation that's going on. But I'd say at a policy level, across all parties, there's a deafening silence about childcare at the moment. We can't be talking about jobs, jobs, jobs without being conscious of and talking about childcare and, and how to fix the problem that we've got. Um Childcare, I guess, like many things, that the term build back better is really important. Childcare was broken before the crisis. It was very, very fragile. Um, we were seeing extensive um, numbers of closures. A lot of families, and, and many of those actually the key worker families who played such a critical role in, in recent months, already probably experienced that feeling that many of us um, are now experiencing in terms of being locked out of childcare. If you work irregular hours, um, or long shifts, if you have very limited income coming in, it is very hard already to find childcare places. If you have children with special educational needs, it is very difficult to find childcare places. So to some extent, the rest of us are perhaps experiencing that that juggle and that pressure that many households have been under, particularly poorer households, uh, single parent families, people on low incomes for a long time. So perhaps it's it's slightly kind of waking the rest of us up to the pressures that that entails. So, Lucy, just for people who don't necessarily know the answer to this, what schools are due to reopen in September. Talk to us about what is likely to happen uh, in the childcare sector and the scale of the, just summarise, if you can, the scale of the crisis facing the sector. So, as I was saying, childcare has been fragile before the sector. Many providers feel very much starved of cash. So no one's got any savings to help kind of cover. And the financial pressure that they're under now is significant. So recent surveys done by the Early Years Alliance suggesting that one in four settings will be closed for good by Christmas. So that could be between 200,000 and 150,000 childcare places lost for good. Even if they were, even if they were to sort of reopen? Yes. Um, some of the recent polling is showing that uh, less than half of parents um, who, who were questioned in June were expecting to, to take up their places again. There's concerns from, from parents around the health implications of using nurseries, but also there's big pressure on household income and people's working patterns and, and their security of work is changing as well. 71% of providers are anticipating they'll be running at a loss for at least the rest of the year. And those settings that are managing to, to continue are accruing debts and those debts will need to be paid off in some way. So the risk is even those that make it through are going to have to find a way to repay the debts. And, and the most likely way to do that will be through increasing fees. So that's the state of the childcare sector as a result of COVID. And we'll come on to some of the solutions in a second. But I think it'd be good if both of you talked about the fact that the, the, um, the, the experience that families have had uh, of, of looking after children during this crisis has not fallen in an equal way in gender terms. I think it's fair to say, uh, to put it to put it mildly. Um, wh why don't you both talk to this, Christine first? Why don't you say something about about this? 
as is always the case. And again, as with the things that Lucy's been talking about, this is really an exacerbation of things that were present before the crisis. Right? It was already the case that the vast majority of unpaid care was done by women. Um, and likewise, the vast majority of unpaid care that's been generated by the pandemic has been picked up by women. Um, and that has really huge implications, I think, going forward in terms of widening the career penalty that working mothers already suffer. Um, and again, I think that's the case even in a sort of best case scenario for quite um, secure, well-off middle-class professional women. So academia is a good example. I think there's been some research done showing that um, there's a massive disparity in the amount of academic papers being published by women and men during lockdown, for example. And again, kind of that's uh, massively worse for people who are in insecure or low-income work. So I think at the extreme, we could basically be seeing a whole cohort of women starting to be pushed out of the labour market um, with a disproportionate effect on on low-income women or women in deprived areas as well. And I guess, Lucy, it's shone a light both on the, as Christine implied, the the expectations of employers and the very gendered expectations of employers and also the gendered division of labour in the home, basically. So it's a combination of what happens in the home and what the expectations of employers are. Yeah, absolutely. So before COVID, the maternal employment rate was at 75%, which is is great. I mean, it could be better, but that was really good news. But I think we're going to see some really significant changes. And uh, research coming out of the Fawcett Society already are showing mothers are much more likely than fathers to have either lost their jobs, been furloughed or quit um, as a result of COVID. We've got over 4 million mothers in the labour force at the moment who've got children who are under 11 years old. And there was, um, I think this hits home for me a lot, there was some research from UCL a few weeks ago showing that working mothers have been able to only do one hour of uninterrupted paid work for every three hours that, that fathers have managed to do during the lockdown. But then there's also that conversation that goes on in the home, you know, where households are under pressure and economic decisions need to be made. Um, some of this is cultural. Some of this feels like straight economic sense. But before the crisis, women were particularly overrepresented in part time work. Um, when it comes to a question of who's going to need to take a break in order that the children can be cared for it seems like a sensible decision that it's women that are stepping out, but that is going to have short and long-term implications for, for women's careers, for women's representation and for household income. Well, it's really, really important to talk about both sets of issues. Now, Now, Neff is calling uh, Lucy for a childcare infrastructure fund. Say a bit more about that and say what lessons we can learn from what's happened in other countries during this process. Yeah, certainly. So there's been a lot of talk of infrastructure recently, but sadly, it's mostly been fluorescent jackets and hard hats. So childcare is a critical social infrastructure. And as I said earlier, we can't talk about jobs, jobs, jobs without acknowledging that childcare needs to exist in order that people can turn up for those jobs, particularly women, particularly lone parents. Um, so what NEF is proposing is it's a two-stage response. The first response is actually to acknowledge the enormous crisis that, that is taking place before our very eyes in the childcare sector. And government needs to move quickly to step in and intervene to shore up the sector in order that they can... Um, that they can continue to provide the care that's needed with the flexibility that will be required over the next six months. 
So what we're suggesting um, is a direct payment to all Ofsted registered providers, and that payment would cover all of the staff salaries and lift those staff salaries up to the real living wage, and then would cover overhead essentials for providers as well. In return for paying that money, providers would be obliged to provide free childcare to all parents, whether they take up their places or not. So ensuring that those places are secured and offering free care to those parents who are using it. So what would this mean for somebody who currently has a childcare place and then for somebody who wants a childcare place but can't get one? So at the moment, um, payment for childcare places is through the incredibly complex system of free hours, which are available to some but not all families and are on the basis of all sorts of different hours. What we're saying is freeze all of that and tax-free childcare payments, take all of that over and redeploy that to pay directly the costs of providing childcare. So those families who are already who already have a place would no longer be required to make any financial contribution for that place. Essentially, what we're saying is let's move away from an incredibly complex system that is not very efficient in terms of how it invests money. Um, It is hugely bureaucratic for both parents and providers who are using it and pay the direct costs of providing childcare in the short term so that we know that those providers have the flexibility that they need. How does this compare to what's happened in places like Australia and Ireland during this crisis? Well, the intervention is very much mirrored on on what's going on in Australia and and Ireland. Um, In both those countries, they run a similar market-based approach to childcare, and both of them were recognising their sectors were under significant um, threat of collapse, Uh, so driven by a desire both to ensure continuity of care for children and also to avoid the mass redundancies of childcare workers. They stepped in, ensured that key workers got free childcare and that all um, providers' salary costs and overheads were paid. Because what also has been going on in this country, which we didn't touch on at the beginning, but about 30% of childcare providers during the lockdown have continued to ask parents to make a financial contribution for places that they can't use. Families have been under this real kind of pressure to continue to pay because they're worried if they don't pay, they lose their place, even though they can't use their place at the moment. But if they get asked to go back to work at some point in the future, they won't be able to go back to work if they don't have a place. So there's this this huge kind of pushing it back onto households to, to cover the cost of this, where governments should actually be investing. So, Christine, beyond this, what should we be looking at, do you think, to address these issues around childcare that we've, we've talked about, how women have been hit so disproportionately by this, about the division of labour in the home, about the way that employers see childcare? What, what do you think we, uh, we should be thinking about to, to improve the situation? It's funny, we look at the US healthcare system, for example, and we think, well, that's obviously bonkers. It's like one of the most expensive healthcare systems in the world. It's fragmented, it's privatised, it's inefficient. Everybody has a universal right to healthcare. Why do you not just provide it 
publicly, right? And that seems bonkers to us because we have the NHS. But I think a lot of Europeans would probably look at our childcare system and think exactly the same thing, right? It's one of the most expensive in the world. It's not high quality. It's certainly not because the staff are being paid or treated well, because a lot of childcare workers are on poverty pay or in really insecure employment in terrible conditions. They're not being valued. Their skills and professionalism isn't being recognised. So if we can use this moment where childcare really is facing a crisis, a crisis that could lead to mass redundancies for childcare workers, women being pushed out of the labour market, nurseries failing... Um, if we can use that as a kind of moment to reimagine the childcare system more fundamentally, to turn it into something that we think about more in the way that we think about education or healthcare, so that it should be provided as a universal right by the state. And I think, crucially, better paying conditions for childcare workers needs to be part of that. I, this is something I actually feel really strongly about. I think at the moment, we can be in this what seems like a kind of zero-sum game between the unpaid care of parents who are struggling with unaffordable childcare and childcare workers and, and nurseries. But the root cause of all of those problems is that we don't value childcare and we don't treat it as a public good. So those paid workers aren't valued, parents' unpaid work isn't valued, and we need to see that in the round and be treating those problems together rather than imagining that there's some kind of trade-off between them. Can we talk a little bit about what a, a reimagining of unpaid childcare could look like how much of a difference would um shared parental leave flexible working things like this how how much of a difference would would they make a lot of people don't realize how rubbish our shared parental leave system is actually so just as an example um my partner is a very hands-on dad would have loved to take shared parental leave and basically couldn't because i'm self-employed and shared parental leave is paid at the rate of the mum basically um not the person who's taking the leave so if my partner had taken parental leave he wouldn't have got uh paid based on his salary he would have got paid based on my salary which was basically nothing because i was on statutory maternity and i think a lot of because of pre-existing gender inequalities in pay it just means that it's simply unaffordable for a lot of people to take shared parental leave so even though it's theoretically there as a legal right um and much was made of the fact that it was introduced um, it's just not practical for a lot of families to take it up. And so that is contributing to these continuing massive disparities in unpaid care within the home. And so I think fixing that um, and having a genuinely kind of equitable use it or lose it shared parental leave entitlement for non-birth partners paid based on their salary and not their partner's salary um, could be potentially quite transformative in terms of fixing some of these disparities. We're big fans, aren't we, of the... Well, I know latte papa is a bit sort of uh, pejorative, uh, as it's known in Sweden, but but uh, we're big we're big fans, aren't we, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. We've we've talked to people in the Nordic countries, and we're in awe of what they're doing over there. But particularly on this paid paternity leave point, because I think it's so often ignored, use it or lose it, but it's so often sort of it's so often not seen as a priority because I think people underestimate the knock-on implications it can have, the positive knock-on implications it can have. Absolutely. And I think alongside that, um, shifting into a system where flexible working is a right for all from the very beginning of work and not seen as kind of part-time is somehow half-assed, you know. Um, we need to be recognising that working flexibly also enables families to balance their wider caring responsibilities Christine, do you think a light bulb moment is coming? I know you've written about how the crisis hasn't yet prompted one, but 
do you do, do you think one is on the way or i mean i mean i hate to be the voice of doom actually here no, not doom but but i mean it is striking given how compelling this conversation is how little this has been part of the debate isn't it deafening silence <laughs> Yeah, no, I think totally. So far, um, it's been really disheartening, actually. I think a lot of people hope there would be a bit of a light bulb moment once schools and nurseries closed, you know, because we're so dependent on them and so much economic activity would sort of collapse under the strain that people would start to realise that we couldn't go on like this. But instead, I think what's actually happened is you've seen sort of continuity rather than change in the sense that that strain has just been absorbed disproportionately by women in the home, just like it was before and has remained basically invisible to most other people and basically invisible in the political debate. But okay, but let me ask you this question, Christine, draw us the line, the narrative line from the experience of the crisis to the narrative for after the crisis in this area. I mean, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because as we were saying, the um, the impacts are being felt by the people who are directly affected by childcare, so by parents, by childcare workers. They're by and large not really being felt by other people. So for those people, there's an obvious narrative line to say, you know, childcare is a job. You can't do two jobs at once. Looking after a child is work, um, whether it's, you know, unpaid within the home, whether it's paid in a nursery, looking after our children, nurturing them, educating them is one of the most fundamental things that we should be supporting as a society. And at the moment, that activity isn't supported, whether it's paid or whether it's unpaid. Um, None of those people are being valued properly. And more generally, we're having this reckoning, right, with the whole concept of key workers and us realising, you know, who really are the essential workers? What are the activities we can't do without? And it's really glaringly apparent that childcare is one of those activities. I think the problem is that 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 hasn't been brought home in that immediate way to people who don't have children and who aren't directly affected by this. And that's the biggest barrier. But, you know, when I first started writing about this, about childcare during lockdown, I had a guy on Twitter when I, I posed the rhetorical question, you know, if looking after my child was a full time job when someone else was doing it, why isn't it a full time job now that I'm doing it myself? And this random dude on Twitter said, oh, because you chose to have him. Um, and that's how people think about childcare. Right? We've got this idea somehow we've arrived at this idea that having a child is some kind of esoteric lifestyle choice rather than literally the essential reproduction of the human race. And I think that getting over that kind of narrative challenge and, and saying, actually, no, this is a socially essential function and we need to be supported to do it. Um, I think that's what could be the impetus I mean, for, for real change. I mean, we should hear from Lucy, but I mean, maybe the, maybe the other two thoughts are one, a bit like the social care sector, except maybe less, front of mind for obvious reasons it's revealed the fragility and the uh, sort of underpaid nature of the sector what lucy talked about earlier you know that it's such a sort of uh, you know bric-a-brac sort of confusing system uh, the, the the sort of the lack of provision but also i think this point about it shone a light on the very gendered nature as gendered as before, the very gendered nature, or not as gendered as before, but still very gendered nature of who ultimately does the work in the home. Is that right, Lucy? Absolutely. I guess one of the other bits I'd add in terms of why it's, it's not 
in front of everyone at the moment is many of us are still working from home. I think when you look at, at key workers and their experience of the, the crisis, it's clear that there was a massive issue with childcare that um, many settings didn't didn't open, that childcare, that key workers were having to ne- negotiate and find places for their children on top of working extremely long hours and, and taking big risks with their own health and safety. But these are these are things that are being documented and, and, and are being experienced by individuals across the place. But there's um, either a, a, a willful or a, a unconscious blindness to this um, because this is still at points it feels like this is a household issue. This is the thing that we think about. And my real concern is the tide is in at the moment. You know, we're all locked down still. Most of us have haven't been asked to go back to work unless we really, really have to. But as more and more people start trickling back to work, that's when we'll turn around and find that this childcare infrastructure has gone, and that will be too late. Um, and the, the, the childcare providers are shouting loudly at the moment and explaining exactly what the future looks like. Um, but they're being treated like businesses and like a marketplace and. That is not what we need for high quality universal care. I think that's spot on. And I think it was, uh, when you really think about it, it's astonishing that childcare wasn't even mentioned in the mini budget on Wednesday, right? Um, when you think about the direct job creating potential of investing in childcare for a start in a situation where we're facing mass mm-hmm. unemployment, the indirect potential in terms of supporting women's ability to work and to stay and work. We've been talking about gender disparities, but I think that's really reflective of a gender disparity, you know, a deeper gender disparity in the political debate as well, right? That when we think of industrial strategy, we think of men in hard hats and construction, even though actually investing in care will create more jobs. Um, and in many ways is, is as essential, if not more essential to our future economic prosperity. And I think that's the argument that we need to be making right now. Christine Berry and Lucy Stevens, that's been a really brilliant and uh, enlightening conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So we're joined now by Marianne Stevenson, who is director of the Women's Budget Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. First of all, just for our listeners who may not know, talk to us about the Women's Budget Group and the work you do. Yeah, so we're a network of um, academics, um, women from civil society organisations, the women's voluntary sector, campaigners, um, policy people, trade unionists. And we analyse the impact of economic policy on women and men in the UK. And we also promote uh, gender responsive budgeting, which is a way of looking at budgets for their gender impact, both in the UK and around the world. Now, now we've had a conversation so far uh, with Christine and Lucy about coronavirus, its impact on the child care um, providers, but also on women and their role trying to combine working and looking after kids. Um, talk to us more broadly about the coronavirus crisis and how the Women's Budget Group views its effect on, on women. So I suppose the first thing to say is this crisis comes on top of a set of pre-existing equalities that women experience both in the labour market and in the home. Um, So women are more likely to be low paid, they're more likely to be in insecure work, they're more likely to be on zero hours contracts. Um, So they're, they're more likely to be in debt, they're more likely to be living in poverty. Um, and they do, um, significantly more unpaid work. Um, 
And so obviously when you get a crisis like the coronavirus crisis, that comes on top of those pre-existing inequalities. So you've got women were um, far more likely to be key workers, um, both in the health and social care sector, but also in food retail, for example. But they were also more likely to work in sectors that were completely locked down. So retail, apart from food, hospitality, travel and tourism and so on. Um, so they were, you know, some groups of women were doing more work than they'd ever had to do before. Um, and other groups of women were unable to work and are now in a situation where they're extremely anxious about whether or not they're going to be made redundant in the next few months as the um, furlough scheme lifts. And looking forward, what do you think the long term impact of this will be? Do you think it will affect things like the gender pay gap? Well, I think it's really worrying. Um, As I said, because women are overrepresented in those sectors where there's likely to be high levels of redundancies, um, I think we are likely to see Um, more women losing their jobs and women losing their jobs in greater numbers than they did, for example, after the 2008 financial crisis, where it was men initially who who lost their jobs. Obviously, women were harder hit by the austerity that that came afterwards. Um, So so there's there's that issue. And then there's the issue of childcare. Um, And this is something where I think the government's really not taken sufficient action. You know, most children still haven't returned to school still didn't return to school this term we've got the long summer holidays about to start um, when a lot of working parents rely on grandparents family members friends to provide childcare. obviously with social distancing in place that might not be possible we're not entirely sure whether schools are going to be back with children in full time in a normal school day um, nurseries still aren't taking new babies um, so there's all those barriers as well for women returning to work. Um, so I think it, it is really worrying looking forward. Um, Turn to Us also did some research. They're a charity that, that support people in financial need and they provide advice. Um, and they did some research in about April where they, they estimated that the um, gender pay gap was going to increase based on the relative falls that men and women were predicting in their pay as a result of the virus. So something you advocate for uh, at the Women's Budget Group is gender responsive budgeting, which accounts for these inequalities. Can you, can you explain it to us and, and tell us what it would look like in practice? Sure. So, I mean, it's a, a kind of technical term for a process that's really about thinking and examining how women and men are differently situated in the economy and different groups of women and men are differently situated as well because, you know, our approach to gender budgeting would take into account the fact that um, black women are in a different position to white women, that there's particular issues for disabled women and so on, that there's issues, you know, differences between the outcomes for middle class and working class women. It, it's not just women as a as a single group. Um, so recognising the different situation that women and men are in um, and then analysing how policy is likely to affect them differently. Um, So how we raise money through taxes, how we spend money on public services and social security and so on, in order to develop policies that are um, more likely to promote equality. 
So it's a, it's a mechanism that's been used around the world. Um, we've certainly been talking about it for a long time. I seem to remember meeting Ed to talk about it probably about definitely. 20 years ago. Yeah, I definitely right. When I was in the Treasury, you're completely right, Mary. Yes, yes. So, so you know, we've been banging this drum for a long time. And it's, you know, it's it's been widely adopted in other parts of the world. This isn't something Which countries new. do a good job of it? So it's one of those things that tends to... Um, change depending on political circumstances so it's not like a country will adopt gender responsive budgeting and that's it forever uh, change of government and those sort of policies can disappear so for example australia was one of the um, early adopters of gender responsive budgeting um, and then um, it kind of fell out of fashion and now people are trying to revive it um, there's the a lot of work. must be good the Scandies, the Scandies do good work. There's a lot of work in South Africa on gender budgeting. Um, and I mean, there is, there's no one size fits all way of doing it. You know, this isn't a kind of technical fix you can apply. It's really about having an awareness that, that policy affects women and men differently. So, for example, um, if you cut income tax, you're more likely to benefit men than women because men pay more income tax. If you cut social security, you're more likely to hit women than men because women receive a higher proportion of their income from social security. So it's thinking those through, but also thinking about unpaid work as well as paid work. So what impact do policy have on the unpaid work that women do? So we're living in a parallel universe. It's our utopia. It's the Jeffocracy. We, we appoint you Chancellor. What would a gender responsive summer statement earlier this week have looked like? So we've been calling for a care-led recovery. Um, we have a crisis in social care that pre-existed coronavirus, but has obviously been hugely exacerbated by it. Um, we have a crisis in childcare. Um, investment in care in the care sector would create um, more than twice as many the latest modeling we've done is 2.7 times as many jobs as investment in construction so it's a way of creating jobs um, these jobs are less polluting than other forms of work so they're they're greener jobs um, and it would reduce the gender employment gap um, so we think that you know we called on the Chancellor, unfortunately he didn't listen to us, but we did call on him to um, adopt policies for a care-led recovery. And what's the scale of job creation that you could be talking about, do you think, in the care sector? Um, if, you, if we had the same proportion of people working in the care sector as they do in um, a number of Scandinavian countries, you'd be talking about over two million jobs. Two million more jobs? Two million more jobs. Yeah. Wow. And that level of investment. I mean, it's the and and even if you increase the pay of care workers to the same level as construction workers, because, you know, one of the arguments is, well, of course, you create more jobs in care than construction because care workers are so badly paid. Even if you increase that level of pay, you would still um, create um, more than twice as many jobs. If we made those investments, um, it it would be beneficial for the economy as well as tackling the, the crisis in care that we're currently facing. Marianne Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So what did you think? Well, I mean, it was a, a phrase that was very familiar to you, but I, I hadn't quite heard it expressed like this before, but was it was about the formal economy versus family economy and about how childcare 
falls into the latter when you know it's so contingent uh, people's ability to to work and be produ- productive is is so contingent on that and it's clearly not the way we should be thinking about it i think it is striking the end of that conversation with christine in particular how absent the conversation this has been you know it, it, we have talked about social care, and, and obviously social care has been front of mind for reasons we know about. But it is interesting that childcare, the childcare infrastructure, the weakness of our childcare infrastructure, who's looking, who's doing care in the home, it's been a relatively hidden subject, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it hasn't really been front and centre. How do you change that cultural stuff, though? So, we, you know, we, we can talk about um, the, the state providing more child care and and all all the ideas for that we've talked about but what about you know the, the the way men see work in the home how does that change well i think there is something interesting isn't there we've talked about it before fathers leave un- use it or lose it changes the attitude of men from the get-go but you know you need big cultural change but somehow policy change and cultural change seem to have to go together um and that's what the fathers leave. All of the experience of fathers leave is that when it was, you know, when 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 it's shared, but not just dedicated to the father, it tends to get taken by the mother. The mm. minute you make it, use it or lose it, the father takes it, and 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 it and it propels change. I think I'm right in saying that Iceland was one of the laggards in in, in among the sort of Nordic Scandinavian countries on this, and then. Um, it, it sort of made a massive leap forward after it introduced use it or lose it. So I think, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, policy, policy change needs to go together. But I suppose my undertaking from this is this has got to be a central part of the way we think about a strategic industrial policy. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And for our cheerful person this week, we, we've, uh, we've invited somebody on who was my actual reason to be cheerful a few weeks ago. He is the host of Nick Cope's Popcast on CBeebies. Nick Cope, hello. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for inviting me on. Well, well, thanks for coming on. Thank you for keeping my four-year-old hugely entertained, especially during those early weeks of lockdown. I'm not sure that we would have got through without you. Um, is, is that a common response? You're getting a lot of people getting in touch on Twitter and elsewhere saying you've really saved the day for us here, Nick. To, my, to be honest with you, yes, I have actually. Yeah, it's been really, really lovely. Yeah, a lot of people have been saying, you know, and people are still discovering the show, which is which is amazing. And they're just saying, you know, this has been, you know, the, the saviour of their their lockdown, and they've been really enjoying the show and sharing it with their friends and whatnot. It's been it's been fantastic. Yeah. Now, I wondered if um, for for people who haven't seen it, probably, you know, that includes most people without very small children, if we could just explain what it is, because you you had a a somewhat storied career as a musician. And then in more recent years, you've you've started doing children's songs and had a lot of success with that. And now that's on the TV. So can you just explain to people what the podcast is? The podcast is basically it's me and my whippet Norman. And we, 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 we appear in these different locations in our rather fancy caravan. And then we're influenced by our environment as to what the song might be, because that's the whole idea that I've got to come up with this song, put it on the podcast machine and send it out into the, into the world for everyone to enjoy. And we get visited by the podcasters, who are a great bunch of children, one of which is my grandson, Remy. He often is turning up on, on Saturday, Saturday, actually, uh, which will be last Saturday to Saturday gone, I think. Grandson, did you say? Yeah. He doesn't look old enough. Oh, you're too kind. No, we started early. So how, how did you make this transition into children's music? Because I know you, I used to play your band Candy Skins on the radio in the, uh, in the early and mid-90s. I tried to see if it, when Ed was at Oxford, he would have been out to see the Candy Skins, but you, you didn't really go out, did you, Ed? Not really, no. Oh, never mind. Well, you, you didn't miss much, Ed. Anyway, no, it was... Um, it was yeah, I mean, the transition came because the, the band sort of split up. It came to sort of a, a very sort of slow, painful ending. And then I spent a bit of time in the wilderness um, washing dishes and then serving the dishes um, with food on them to various people around Oxford. And I didn't really touch my guitar because I'd exhausted my creativity. But Amanda, my other half, she started a Montessori childminding business and I registered as well so I could look after the children as well. And um, we had two young children. We are, Our eldest had, was 11 at the time, but we had two younger children as well. So there's lots of ch- children's stuff going on. And I started picking up my guitar once we'd done giving the children lunch, the childminding children lunch. Amanda was tidying up and I would entertain them and I would just make up silly little songs and stuff like that. And one of the children, their parents were, the, her parents, sorry, were, they ran the Oxford Montessori schools and nurseries. And they said, would I come and fill in the space of their music teacher who'd just left? So I went along. I thought, well, that's quite a nice idea. I'll think, try and find some ideas of some songs and stuff and just go along and see what it's like. So I did that. And it was, you know, it was, it was, it was somewhat chaotic, as you can imagine, because I hadn't really prepared for it. And you do have to prepare if you're in front of sort of like nursery children. 
but I went home and had a bit of a light bulb moment and that, that was it I sort of thought okay I could start writing some songs I could possibly you know start being creative and make some money out of um, writing songs again and, and what is the trick because what what I love about the podcast and subsequently listening to your, your albums is a lot of music you end up listening to if you've got children is is terrible anybody who's been exposed to Little Baby Bum will know this um what what is the trick to writing children's music that is also good? I I guess what I'm doing I'm probably thinking about people like yourselves that you're going to be listening to it and I you know I put everything into that sort of trying to make them original and clever and um, not actually original because the good thing about it is you can sort of take lots of ideas and influences rather than being in the band when you're going to be sort of saying oh that you've got a band member saying oh that sounds a bit like them or it sounds like a bit like that band or you can just take all these different influences and, and use them which is brilliant um, but um, I, you just try and make the best song I possibly can that's, that's all I, 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 I try and do and make it as entertaining as possible and, and how common is this experience that somebody is watching CBeebies with their kid and thinks, I know that guy from somewhere, I can't quite place him, and does exactly what I did. It was, oh, he's the guy from the Candy Skins. You're getting a lot of either Candy Skins fans or, or even contemporaries of yours from the 90s music scene who are sort of rediscovering you. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's all going, it's all going full circle, which is really cool. Yeah, it was a funny thing on Twitter the other day that a guy put up. He said... Um, it must have been a couple of weeks ago because I think they were watching the reruns of the Glastonbury and Kylie Minogue was on and then she introduced Nick Cave to come and sing with her and the guy that was watching it, he was the guy that was twittering this message, he said that his wife said, ah, oh, no, not him, he just sings songs about poo. <laughs> now, I would watch Nick Cave's podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that is a spin-off uh, I would uh, definitely What would I be doing on stage at Glastonbury with Kylie Minogue? I've got no idea. Nick, you might be willing to play us a song, yes? Yeah, I could, I could play a little bit of a song, yeah. Yeah, let's Please. have a burst. Okay, I won't play all, because this is, this is quite a saga, this song. I think this was on last, this was a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. It's all about Hugh the Hedgehog, and he gets stuck on the A32. Oh, no. But I'll play a little bit about it and leave you sort of, sort of on, on the cliff edge with it. I really hope it has a happy ending, Nick. Well, you'll have to go and watch the television programme to find out. Okay, yeah. okay. I don't want him to be squashed. Have you heard about you, the hedgehog who got into trouble on the A32? He was out there hunting worms and he took a wrong turn. Now he can't get across to get home. No, he can't get across. Transit van pulled over to see what he could do. But Hugh got scared of the man in the van, so he ran and he ran and he ran and he ran towards the A32. And a gang from Milton Keynes on the Silver Dream machines had to break and swerve and skid. Hugh's mum just looked away, she got down on her knees to pray. She said, won't somebody help my prickly kid? And you know what she did? She said, Hugh, Hugh, what you gonna do? You gotta get across to get home, son. You gotta get across to get home. 
So you'll have to watch the rest of this. Wow. Ed, you're on tenterhooks wanting to know what, what will happen to Hugh. I'm on tenterhooks. Never mind well, you this need to... foxy podcast. I'm going to go and watch, watch to find out what Watch happens. the podcast. You have to. And the song gets worse than that. You really do think you don't know what's going to happen right to the end. Crumbs. There you go. You do that, Ed. And wait till you hear about Ralph the Rusty Robot. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. Yeah. I'm hooked. What uh, ages? Nick, what ages do you think, Nick? Does it go? Does it sort of? That's a it's, it's a really good question because um, the really really tiny babies seem to like it, and I've got a theory that the because the parents are enjoying it, that the parents the children are taking because some of the subject was Rust, the Rusty Robot song, for example, is quite it's quite intricate. The idea of what what the robot's going through, it's all about sort of being thrown out on the scrap heap. Mm-hmm. And all that sort of stuff, but they but they like all that, and they they like the sounds of it and the sound of the words and stuff like that. So I mean, because of the subject matter, I guess anything from zero to for childrens up to nine, about nine, I reckon. And I'm forty seven, and I'm I'm hugely enjoying oh, it. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Nick. Thank you so much for being our cheerful person this week. Absolute pleasure. It's been lovely to meet you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. We are. Have you got any plans for this week? Anything exciting apart from the tofu recipe? Well, I was going to say, I'm off to, off to the tofu. Um, are you Any views on tofu that would be useful? Um, I like tofu, I, you know, especially if it's marinated in something. I like a firm tofu. I mean, I've sort of started off... I mean, I've sort of suddenly come to a realisation which I'm not a great tofu fan but I just somehow when you look at these recipes they look really great do you know what I mean it's because of all the food photography tips oh, yeah, and yeah. tricks that I told you earlier yeah. I don't think they do that in the New York Times do they? oh that's I think they do of record all the news <laughs> that's fit to print should we thank our guests uh, we should I would like to thank Christine Berry and Lucy Stevens and also Marianne Stevenson and also thank you to the uh, wonderful Nick Cope for telling us about Nick Cope's podcast. Emma Caution produces our podcast with research from Joel Pierce and uh, backup from Joe Kenyon and from Zoe Gelber, who does a great job, by the way, of putting together the newsletter. Subscribe oh, we love to the it. Yeah. Uh, go to cheerfulpodcast.com. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the iDents Ed Seed composed the music, and the artwork was designed by. Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.